there they, they made music and they sang people who and people who and you know what they took people who sang and who could play music even alive in Auschwitz you know why the screaming that would come out of the gas chambers would be so bad so they had the music playing real loud that the soldiers and, and the Germans who were there and the Polish people would, were not bothered by it. it it's unbelievable when I talk about it I, I cannot imagine. And now there are people here who say that I enjoy talking about it. I love to talk about the Holocaust, but you know why I talk about the Holocaust? At night, before I go to sleep, I think about my family. And my mother tells me every night, Rose, keep talking. We can't anymore. You keep talking. It's Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. My name is Benjamin Cothra. I'm a professor of history here at Fullerton. And my guest today is Cora Granada, professor of history, a colleague in the department, and associate director of the Center for Oral and Public History. Thanks for joining us today, Cora. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And in a few minutes, we'll have a couple of your students joining us to talk about some very exciting activities they've been involved in. Uh, Cora, you're here today to tell us about a couple of really interesting and extraordinary projects that you've been involved in for several years. And what are the names of these projects? And um, from there, we'll, we'll talk about how you got into them. Sure. Well, one project that we'll be highlighting and that you'll have the opportunity to hear some excerpts from is the From Hitler's Europe to the Golden State Oral History Project that I've been directing since 2012, in which students have been taking a course with me where I train them in oral history, and then they interview Europeans currently living here in Southern California who lived through the Second World War or the Third Reich in Europe and later migrated here to the United States in the aftermath of World War II. So students are actually participating in this. They're the ones doing interviews. Yes, it is primarily a student-driven project taught as part of our oral and public history curriculum here at Cal State Fullerton. Now I know there's another project though that's related that it's taken up a lot of your time the past year or two. Really exciting. What's that been about? Yes, that is an innovative public and oral history project that has grown out of some contacts that I developed in Berlin um, called in German Lange Tafel, which translates as Long Table. And that is a um, project that involves a nonprofit organization based in Berlin that has for about a decade been conducting oral histories primarily in immigrant communities and then culminating these oral history projects with an open-air public festival that brings a community together to have a more public community dialogue on the theme of immigration. So the long table comes in and that they close down a city street, set up a long table, and it brings oral history, which often can remain in the classroom or in the archive, in the public sphere. And we brought this project from Berlin to Los Angeles, again involving students. A long table suggests food to me. It does. It does. We <laughs> right? break bread and tell stories together at the long table. Great, great. We're going to hear a bit more about that soon, your students' uh 
were deeply involved in that as well. But first, perhaps a little bit about you, Cora. How did you, when did you know that history was for you? When did you know that you were a historian in the making? Wow, um, that's a great question. You know, I, I grew up with parents, here in Southern California, actually, and with parents who were, I guess, a bit older in terms of a generation. So my mother was close to 40 when she had me, and back then that was not quite as common as that may be today. And not only that, uh, my mother was an immigrant from Germany. So she was somebody who, from a very young age, you know, I grew up bilingually actually when I was very small, I spoke German better than English, and um, we spoke only German at home. And she would tell stories about her childhood so I guess oral history and storytelling was really in my childhood and, and German history from, from an early age. Oh, it all comes together. It all makes sense. It, it all comes together, right? And not only that, but my mother was born in 1931. So for those of you who are familiar with German history, that means that her formative years were in the Third Reich and in the Second World War. She came from Hitler's Europe to the Golden State. She did. She yeah. did. Uh, but at some point, you formalize this, you're going to school, you decide to become a history major. Where did you go to school? So I started off actually as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, not as a history major, but as an under I got my bachelor's degree in political science. Mm -hmm. So I was very interested in politics and international relations and history, uh, and but pursued it in a slightly different direction as a political scientist, and then received my master's degree at Georgetown University uh, at an interdisciplinary German and European studies program that's part of the School of Foreign Service there. Still at the time thinking probably that I would become the next ambassador to Germany, right? right. But some way along that path, um, I connected most in this interdisciplinary program with the humanities and the historians in the program. I liked the questions that they were asking. Um, I liked the, um, the social justice motivations behind what they were doing. And they inspired me to get my PhD in, in German history, which is then what I did at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Right. Uh, now, you get your PhD in German history, but somewhere along the line, oral history became a, a formal part of your life, part of your, part of your project, right? Yeah. It did. Well, like I said, I guess some of it was from those early years of, of storytelling, of listening to my mom's stories about what it was like to live in a bombing raid in an industrial region of Germany that was heavily targeted in World War II what it was like to overhear the debates between family members, half of whom were communists and therefore opposed to the Nazis, the other half of whom were enthusiastic about them, right? Now again, from her childhood's perspective. So those, those stories mattered to me as a child. I, I became interested in, in using oral history as a, as a method in historical research at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, which has a very developed oral history program. So they formalized that. And then my, uh, my PhD research was on cultural minorities in, in communist East Germany. 
And for that project, although, of course, archival and textual sources were very important, oral history was really, really central as well. So conducting oral histories with the members of these communities. So that's how it all came together. So that became a specialty of yours. And when you came to Cal State Fullerton, you became involved with the center, right? And now you train students in oral history techniques, um, which is really uh, one of the exciting things that happens in, in the history department here. We have the center and we have students who are learning real research techniques and actually involved in the projects themselves. And I think at this point we should bring in uh, Sarah Heim. Hello, Sarah. Hello. And Sean Hughes. Hello. Sean. Uh, welcome to Outspoken. I assume that a while back you must have had some oral history training from Dr. Granada or Dr. Prisakis or one of the, the professors here. Uh, I assume you both had oral history formally? That is correct, with Dr. Granada. Some students tell me they're frightened of doing oral history because they've got to encounter people they don't know or what happened. Were you scared when you started or were you full of confidence when you went and did your first interviews? I wouldn't say I was full of confidence. It's the, the person that I interviewed was a, a friend of my mother who I had never really met before but I had heard a lot about. So there was some level of you know personal familiarity but still not quite but she was happy to tell her story and that made things much easier for me didn't have to pry too much probe too much not really she was she was very excited to be able to tell her story what about you sir um for me it was a little bit nerve-wracking but only in the sense that anytime you do something new and you you test yourself it's a bit nerve-wracking yeah well well said you know i tell my students it's okay to be a little uncomfortable that means you're growing, <laughs> that means you're learning, right? You're doing something new. And was this, were, were both of you in the From Hitler's Europe to the Golden State project? Then? We were not. We were actually students in the Langetafel class. Oh, I see, because you transitioned into where we're going to go now, which is from uh, one project to the other. How did Langetafel become part of your, your palette? How did that happen? Well, I received a grant in 2014, a Humboldt Foundation grant, which is a German government grant, to uh, go to Berlin and um, conduct research that was related to the From Hitler's Europe to the Golden State Project. So that, that oral history project uh, collects interviews with Europeans who lived through the war and migrated. And what I'm interested in in my research related to these, these now over, close to 100 interviews that we've collected is what, how does migration shape the memory of, of World War II? So the, sort of the influence of migration on, on memory more broadly. Um, but related to that, then I also wanted to set the stage of, for those Europeans, in particular Germans in my interest, who didn't immigrate, what, how are they talking about the war? So I was conducting interviews in Berlin related to this research in the summer of 2014. And as a side project, really, wanted to get a better sense of the oral and public history landscape in Berlin and open up some potential opportunities for international partnerships with our center and, and opportunities for students. I was collaborating with a wonderful organization in Berlin called the Zeitzeugenbörse, which translates as, well, Börse is the German word for 
stock exchange, like Bourse in, in French, right? So they see themselves as an exchange for historical eyewitnesses or narrators who tell their stories, but as they like to put it, a, an exchange where everybody wins, right? They bring elderly Germans together with the younger generation um, or with journalists, filmmakers, anybody who would like to speak to a, a, an oral history narrator, they make those connections. And this group was helping me with my research and they also said, well, you know, you say you want to get a sense of some other organizations. We are partnering with this wonderful nonprofit called Lange Tafel. You should really go check it out. Um, I got an invitation to a Lange Tafel event, and I went. It was a wonderful July, sunny day in Berlin, and both Sarah and Sean were in Berlin. They can attest to what these days are like. I show up to this event. And I just was immediately really impressed. What I saw was a really diverse community in really a neighborhood that is known in Berlin to be a bit of a hot spot in terms of immigration, primarily a large Turkish immigrant population there. But I saw people of all walks of life sitting together at a long table, sharing stories and um, enjoying both the atmosphere, but also having conversations about the impact of immigration in their community. I connected well with the director of that um, nonprofit, and we said, hey, let's try to see about whether we could do this. It was sort of an adventurous idea at the time. Could we bring this to Los Angeles? Could it be done in LA? And that started a, a two-year process, really, of, of making that a reality. And Sarah and Sean became part of the wonderful pioneering group of students who made it a reality in, in LA in, in, in March of, of 2016. So you became an international relations person after all. I did. You're right. Because <laughs> it actually did involve um, working with government officials. Los Angeles and Berlin are sister cities. So we were meeting with, in, in the Berlin City Hall with their sister city's office, with the directors of their international relations office, quite frankly. The city of Berlin does foreign policy, and they sponsored us to bring the project to Los Angeles. So. And it came to fruition last spring? Last spring. In Los Angeles at Grant Park, I believe, right? Yes, Grant Park. Sean, Sarah, what was your role in all of this? You, you learned your oral history techniques, but then you were helping put on a major public project. How, what was your role? Well, part of the project was we worked with an elementary school, and we helped kids learn how to do oral history. Uh, so for them, it was a bit more of a simpler process. But uh, going, we went down to the school, and we assisted kids, and writing out their uh, oral histories and uh, we showcased those at the event so I got to help with the kids and writing down their stories and that was fun and um, I was also in charge of decorations with my friend Katie and uh, that was a little bit less fun but <laughs> um, definitely uh, rewarding after we set up all the decorations at the event. Great. How about you? Um, same. I was at the uh, the Goethe International Charter School in Los Angeles working with the students there. I really enjoyed that. I love working with kids. I love working with history. And uh, as far as the event itself, I you know, help setting everything up, making sure things are 
things go the way they're supposed to. People are going where they're where they need to go. Everybody's settled down. Everything's kind of flowing the way it needs to. This must have been a long table. How many people showed up to to the actual event? We had 250 people show up to Grand Park, which we were just absolutely thrilled about. And as, as Sarah and Sean have mentioned, many of them were family members from our partner school, the Gertz International Charter School. But we also broadened it to the larger community. We had um, folks from the German community, from the narrators that our students interviewed. They were collecting interviews about immigration, but not just about European immigration. This was capturing the immigration landscape of LA. Mm -hmm. So we had interviews from people from El Salvador, Mexico, Lebanon, Japan, China, uh, Algeria, Nigeria, you know, you name it, on display, and those narrators were invited as well. So it was a very, diverse, it really reflected reflected the, the immigration story of Los Angeles, what we were really proud of. So, And there were other highlights on the program. I believe that uh, there was an oral history performance on the program as well. There was, which was a really, I would say, the highlight of, of the event itself. We had a group of Cal State Fullerton students and alum perform excerpts from oral histories in our archives, from the former Hitler's Europe to the Golden State project, as well as some other projects, reflecting the immigration stories to Los Angeles. Well, we actually have an excerpt from that performance, so here's a chance to listen to it. Well, in the first place, my father did not want to remain in Mexico on account of the revolution. After my grandfather passed away, then he told my grandmother that there was no place for a human being to live under those conditions, you know. One day, my mama sent me to a dump to throw something over there. I was right in the dump when all of a sudden, I heard a lot of gun shooting. I could hear the bullets zoom by me. When I got to the house, one of those big shells, cannon shells, hit right on the front door and knocked the whole side of it in, the house where we were living. So all the people were scared to death all the time. It was confusing, but as a kid, you really didn't know any better. You thought it was part of life because you'd hear explosions. There were attacks in Tassanut. You would hear the air siren and then you'd go into your bunker and the Viet Cong would rocket the air base. It was frightening at first and then you kind of get used to it. When I look back to those periods, it was a happy childhood amid a war in your own backyard. You really didn't know what peace was like. I remember the German troops marching in. There was no opposition to the German troops. They just marched in. I remember standing at the ring, which is in Vienna, was was the downtown. We saw the German troops marching in, in their tanks and still helmet. Then almost immediately they started activities like breaking stores, Jewish-owned stores, pinning windows with anti-Jewish slogans, out with Jews, kill Jews, and things like that. My mother had a little grocery store, a little mom and pop type grocery store, and almost immediately they came. They painted the windows in the stores with Nazi slogans and prevented people from coming in. I don't know after how many months came the English soldiers to us because it became an English zone. And then after a certain amount, they gave that part to the Russians and we became a Russian zone. That was the worst thing that happened in my life, the Russian zone. Yeah, and that was hardship because they divided Germany and they didn't let people, even if it was your sister living over the border, you couldn't go home to visit your sister or your own parents. That was the hardest part. I think it was the spring of 44, and these were women with lots of little children, and usually with larger families. And the thing was, where would you take them? 
because they were bombed in Berlin and in Leipzig and in all of these places. And when they were first evacuated in the spring of 44, when it was said, we are taking women and children, small children, we are taking them out of town. People said, well, why? We are going to sit over there where we were bombed because we heard how Berlin and all of the cities were bombed. My school was already destroyed. That was probably in June and my mother said, we need to leave. And my grandmother said, I'm not leaving. My bed is here and I'm not going to lay in someone else's house. The Russians are not bad and that it's total propaganda. And my mother said, no mother, it's not going to be that easy. And my grandmother talked about me. She's not going to get her schooling and she's going to tumble around somewhere. My mother said to me, well, you stay with your grandmother. She'll see and you'll come. So she and my sister and my mother's sisters and their children all left and promptly they were bombed. I remember there were a couple of times we took over the medical school and we were asked for certain things and they were given to us. But then violence escalated in El Salvador and the army took the university. And when the army took the university, they took a lot of people with them, students and professors. And after they destroyed the university, they went to the central library and all the books were piled up and burned. And then the news was, you know, people have been captured and some people who were captured, they will never be seen again. When my brother and I knew that there was no way of staying in Austria alive, we thought of means of escape. We decided to leave illegally. My daddy used to say, well, now is the chance to get out of here. Because in those days, Villa and Caranza were fighting all the time and killing people like flies. A bunch of fellows over there in Chihuahua got together and they, they got some funds and traveled to Phoenix, Arizona by truck. They were supposed to be back in Mexico in six months. And I left Germany. I left East Germany because I didn't want to be under the communism. And I vividly remember the night we left because my father drove home on a scooter and put my mom, my three sisters, and I, and you know, middle of the night weaving down the streets of Saigon, you could hear the explosions. The lights were out. I didn't know then that we would, would be leaving forever. It took us 24 hours to fly at the time. First we stopped in Iceland and we had to sleep there. It was an eight-hour flight. From there we flew to Newfoundland where we came in in a bad storm. We were supposed to fuel the gas and go on to New York, but we couldn't, so we had to stay there another day. So we left Germany on December 10th and we arrived in America on December 12th, 1953. Well, the United States was always a dream and a kind of almost messianic myth or expectation. I don't know if my mom saw I could do better or if that is at a woman seeing that she needs something better for her kids and the country not offering them those benefits, not offering them opportunities, not offering them something else. So this is one of the things that our Center for Oral and Public History does really well. Our, our oral history performances really bring our interviews out of the archives into a public setting and the feedback that we got from that performance was really phenomenal. Yeah, they never fail to be moving. We, we've done them at several exhibit openings as well and uh, we always get a really strong uh, emotional response to those. Uh, when you think about bringing together this large group of people around these themes, uh, I'd like to ask Sean and, and uh, Sarah, this isn't your typical uh, academic exercise, is it? I mean, this is a very different, 
I don't know if you thought that this is the sort of thing that you'd be signing up for as history majors, but what, what was it like to see this big event pulled off? Well, it was definitely outside the norm. Um, usually for a history major, your experience in the classroom is just reading a lot and writing a lot, which is what we signed up for. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this event, it was really rewarding to uh, work towards a project, to have a goal in mind, and I think we accomplished it quite well. So uh, I think it was really worth it. Yeah, I think what what I enjoyed about it looking back on it was how so much of history feels very individual and how I'm one person reading this book by myself and I read this other book by myself and maybe I'll talk to my professor or somebody else and I write this paper by myself and history is really so much more than that everybody every person kinda of by definition is contributing to history and bringing all these people together to talk about all these things is also history and so I really enjoyed that aspect of it looking back, that it's, it's a community thing. It's not an individual thing. It's also, as Cora mentioned, intergenerational. It's really great that you were working with younger people, but also working with people from other generations and fostering a, a dialogue. That must have been fun as well for you. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. You had this successful event in Los Angeles. And then, as though to top yourselves, <laughs> you planned uh, a, another major excursion, and this was actually a study abroad in, in Berlin, right? So, Cora, how did you imagine a study abroad experience for Fullerton students in Berlin that would, that would make use of this uh, groundwork that had already been laid? Well, I was really fortunate in terms of the timing to be able to lead a group of students to Berlin in the aftermath of having our spring Langetafel project um, here at Cal State Fullerton. And uh, that Berlin, Berlin really offers such a phenomenal opportunity for not study abroad more generally, but also in particular to explore the kinds of themes that we've been exploring here, both with the From Hitler's Europe to the Golden State Project and with Langetafel. Berlin is such a laboratory for understanding memories of the Third Reich in World War II, for understanding really some of the uh, key enduring questions that we have as, as especially for contemporary historians, historians of, of the 20th century and into the 21st century, whether it's the conflicts between fascism and communism, or, or the nature of dictatorship and democracy, of racism and its impact on society, and more recently about migration and immigration. Berlin is at Germany is at the forefront of, of accepting refugees from around the world, in particular Syria. So, so being in Berlin this summer, in the aftermath of this project. Uh, was a, a wonderful opportunity for me personally, but also for, for the students to explore these things. So they took a class called uh, Modern Germany from the Third Reich to Contemporary Multiculturalism. And uh, we studied you know, the history of how the Nazis came to power, their impact on Germany, the Cold War that emerged as, as a result of the Second World War, and how Berlin since these tumultuous times has come to terms with its past and how it, as one of many industrialized cities, deals with 
the theme of immigration and multiculturalism, because what, what many students didn't know before they got there is how multicultural the city of Berlin is. Mm -hmm. um, and and Lange Tafel was our uh, capstone, really, of this. The, the contemporary multiculturalism part of that course title is where Lange Tafel came in, where the students got to attend one of the same events that we put on in March, now in Berlin, to see how the Berliners do it, to see how a different urban landscape influences an event like this, the kinds of dialogues that Germans might have about this theme and how that might be different from what we have in the United States. Well, I'm envious of you, Sean and Sarah. You got to spend a big chunk of your sun summer in, in Germany. What were some highlights for you as you experienced living there for a number of weeks and went on excursions, field trips, and took these courses and ended it with Langatafel? I think what I, what I got the most out of it, what I really enjoyed seeing was just being able to see history in different places. Just, it doesn't matter if you're going down a major street, you'll see not even just buildings, but they'll have plaques somewhere. You'll go down some random side street somewhere and it'll be a plaque that somebody who's not even German, but he was famous, you know, Christopher Isherwood, famous author, he lived here. You know, he's not even German, but there's a plaque where he lived here. You walk around in the street and they have what they call the stumbling stones, those little golden plaques on the ground right in front of this building that somebody lived here was murdered in the Holocaust. And it's, you know, that was, I went in on my own several places within Germany. All over the place you'll see these little plaques on the ground. It doesn't matter if it's a major street, if it's just in a little town off on the side somewhere. It really emphasized just the, the scope of that event and how it was everywhere and how it affected everybody and just being able to see that everywhere. And the significance of the grappling Germany has done with the public memory of that event. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <coughs> Sorry. Um, one thing that I really got out of the trip was uh, also seeing history come alive in a city, but also the importance of community. Um, they had this thing called the Sunday Market and I would go there almost every Sunday we were there. And it was just this influx of people of all nationalities in this giant party. And you had to go to the Sunday market because it was so important to the community that literally everything else was closed. So if you wanted food, that's where you ended up. And it was just beautiful. Like there would be tons of kids, tons of families just hanging out young people, adults, elders, uh, everyone just like meshing together, spending money on frivolous things and having fun. Um, but it was definitely just amazing to see the influx of community. Now, did you get to visit historic uh, places or, or structures as well, field trips uh, beyond the classroom? Yeah, I, I personally, I, I made sure to spend, to really get the most out of being in Germany. And cause I went to I went to Trier, which has uh, one of the oldest cities in Germany. It's got some great old like Roman ruins. Uh, that's where Karl Marx was born. There's all kinds of cities that I went to to make sure that I got to see you know the history in those places. Well, Sean's kind of underplaying how much traveling he did. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was always on the train during the weekend, but uh, I mostly stayed in Berlin and the places that we went to at the class. But there were still so many historical sites to just see in the city. Um, I went up to the top of the TV tower, and I mean, just looking around from the top of that tower, it like 
it's just over the Berlin skyline, and you can see, like, the differences between the east and the west side, and just, like, you'll pass a concrete building, and you'll be just blown away by the fact that that was built, like, 50 years ago, and it just happens to be that that building was, uh, you know, built by East Germany, and it's just freaky. <laughs> well, you get to see, literally, on the landscape itself, you see the, the political division, right? Yeah. Yeah, what sorts of things, when you were planning it, what did you want to make sure your students experienced as you were putting together a study abroad experience? In terms of the field trips that we did as a part of the class, honestly, I had a hard time narrowing down what we would do. <laughs> and I think the students sometimes would say, Professor Granada, you're bringing us to too many places, we're getting tired, but you know, there was so much that we could experience. But breaking it down a little bit week by week, you know, we had five weeks. In our first week, we focused on the Weimar era, the really culturally innovative period in, in German history after World War I, before the rise of the Nazis. And I took them to a historical cabaret, right? So they got to experience what, and they, they can have stories about that because it, 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 you know, you normally don't go to a cabaret with your professor, but, you know, getting that understanding of the avant-garde culture that Berlin represented, the, the openness that Berlin represented before the backlash of the Third Reich, right? Openness in terms of sexuality, culture, art in general. Then when we got to the Third Reich, you know, Germany has, I think more than many other countries, very a very active public history consciousness. And, and it has didn't do this overnight. It took right, decades right. to do this. But since about the 80s, has really started out of a grassroots movement to preserve its um, sites related to the Third Reich. So you can go to, we took them, for example, to the former headquarters of the Gestapo, mm. which is not a standing building. The building was torn down in the aftermath of World War II. It's basically an archaeological dig. You know, for something that existed in the 30s and 40s. For German, in Berlin, the Third Reich is sometimes like an archaeological dig. You're digging out of war ruins to find the basements of where people were interrogated and tortured. I took them to Sachsenhausen, which is a concentration camp about an hour train ride from Berlin. And um, that, I think many of them will say, was probably one of the most... Um, powerful experiences for them. What was that like experiencing that? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind was how odd it was just getting there. Uh, we took a train down to uh, the location and then we got on a public bus uh, and that took us to Sachshausen and on our way there we passed a suburb and as we're passing these houses you're getting closer and closer to the camp and it then you're suddenly there like the suburb doesn't stop it's a part of the suburb in the same way an elementary school would be part of a suburb and so you enter Sachshausen and you can hear lawnmowers going off you can hear families just uh interacting and I know that that probably wasn't the case when it was still active but it was definitely trippy to be there and to know how much how close normalcy is and how it's just insanity where you are. Um, if Sean wants to continue. 
was it was the thing that really struck me the most was was the layout because there's a lot of things that again you read about in a book and it's easy to see, you see something on TV you re, it's just it's a fact to you it doesn't necessarily you know for me a lot of times I have trouble connecting with certain things and being there it was a lot different when you're standing there and you can see that you're standing in the middle of this panopticon and all of these cabins are all pointed directly at you standing in front of this guard tower and that it really struck me because it's okay it's not just this thing that i read in a book it's this is what it looks like this is what it feels like to be in a place like this even when it's basically torn down and there's it's this big empty space now i can see how that used to be and i could see how that just feels feels is an interesting word it's it's an emotional connection that you that yes, you feel very much oh. so i imagine a bit unsettling too um what about you? You've been to several of these, but what is it like when you take students with you? It's a different kind of experience, isn't it? It is, and it was my first time taking a group of students. I um, go to Berlin quite a bit for my own research. So for me, the opportunity to share really what, what I love about Berlin, what gets me excited about being a historian with my students was, was incredibly rewarding. and. Their questions, their responses get me to think about history differently. I remember, Sarah, your response there when we got off the bus and you kept asking our tour guide in Sachsenhausen, but there's a house right there. Was this house standing so close to the camp back then? And it was, right? And what that can tell us about what the bystanders during the Holocaust were aware of or not. There's nothing like seeing that, right? And your question really hitting that home. So uh, it, it gets me to think about how I teach history differently. I'm teaching a course on the Holocaust right now, and I'm teaching it, I'm sure, differently because of the experience we had in Berlin this summer. Yeah, that's great. Um, what's the future hold for these projects? Uh, the Hitler's Europe to the Golden State Oral History Project, the Langetafel connection, what's next? Well, one thing that I'm really excited about is this collaboration with the Zeitzeugenbörse that I mentioned at the beginning, which is the organization that initially led me to Langetafel. Uh, the students haven't uh, mentioned it yet, or I haven't had a chance to, but that group provided uh, historical eyewitnesses to come and meet with our students in class while we were in Berlin. So we met with a, a woman who talked about her childhood during the Third Reich, talked about experiencing the Battle of Berlin. She, um, her family lost the, the villa in the outskirts of Berlin in the city of Potsdam as the Allied troops arrived, and that house was confiscated and became the house that Winston Churchill lived in during the wow. Potsdam Conference. And then you guys, on your own, planned your own excursion to go to her villa, right, uh, just to see it afterward. It's the kind of thing you can't, you can't do here. Um, and, and the Zeitzeugen Börse is really excited about continuing a collaboration with the Center for Oral and Public History. So all of the students in the class wrote reflections about our work with them. They're going to be publishing them in their, they have an, a weekly newsletter that they publish in German for all of their members. They're going to have their first English language version where they're publishing student reflections about their meeting with the Zeitzeugen Börse. That's fantastic. So that's, that's one you know, tangible outgrowth that we're, we're hoping to do others. Maybe even 
Skype in some of their narrators from Berlin to come and speak with my classes. You can do that now mm -hmm. easily. I mean, it's great if I can get you all on a plane to go there, but there are other ways we can do this. For Lange Tafel, we would love to, to continue this collaboration. It's already wonderful that we did the first one in Los Angeles in 2016 and that we were able to take that full circle by bringing Cal State Fullerton students to Berlin to experiencing it there. Um, and the goal would be that this would be a long-term partnership and that we could continue to have other Langetafel projects. Right now it's a question of funds, right? So uh, putting on a public history project like this involves a lot of resources, as you know from the exhibitions. Yes, absolutely. You, you guys you know, saw the, the labor involved. So we're working right now on whether we can continue the support from the city government of Berlin, perhaps get some other sponsors. If we were going to do it again on the on the large scale uh, model that we did, the nice thing is we could also do a smaller long table locally, and I think that um, that could be done in a in a more tangible way. And so I've got my eye on on, on doing that as well. So. Sarah and Sean, how are you different now than you were before you started this whole journey of learning about oral history? doing oral histories, participating in this public history project, traveling to Germany. What's different about you now, do you think? Well, when I started studying history, uh, especially growing up in Southern California, it felt so distant. Like, history was something that happened in the past, got written about in a textbook, and then you read about it, and you did a paper on it. But going to Germany, I was struck by how much work history takes. And what I mean is, there'll be uh, a castle that's hundreds of years old. And before, I would think, oh, well, that castle's just always been there. And it doesn't occur to me how much work goes into keeping that castle there, how much time goes into landscaping or keeping the walls up or just uh, making sure moths don't eat all the furniture. And as we were going through Berlin, I got this sense of just living history, that even the people that we spoke to uh, just painted this like, like, uh, for us, it's like, you dug a tunnel under the Berlin Wall. How? And for them, it's just like, oh, well, it just kind of went from point A to point B to point C, and you, ju you just end up there. And I mean, that was just amazing to me, like just hearing how it like, compounded to make history. <clears throat> I feel like now I have a much more, much more of an appreciation for how people talk about history and how history is kind of represented here. Just seeing it represented physically in Berlin. Uh, just, and seeing here where there, there is kind of that, there's like this, like Sarah talked about, there's a difference. History is this thing that happened over here and what we're living right now is, is our life and as though those two things are different from one another, as though the past doesn't have the effect on, you know, the way we're living right now. And especially in Orange County, there's, there's, it don't, I, I haven't learned much about the history of Orange County, except for the last couple years digging into it and finding things that people don't really like to talk about. And maybe that's why, but, it, but it's, it's, in Germany, there's a lot of things that I'm sure that were like horrible things that people don't necessarily like to talk about but it's there, you can't deny it. And it's, it's it maybe rethink a lot of things here, as far as how people talk about the history of here. 
It's interesting. I led a study abroad for a couple of summers to Italy, and many of the students came back thinking very differently about their own home, <laughs> their own place here. They learned a lot about that place, but it helped them see their own place differently. So I think a lot of them could relate to that. Can I give an anecdote sure, that highlights absolutely. that point? Um, when we brought our narrators in to meet with you all, the students, to, to come to our class, uh, they were all so struck by how diverse a group you guys were. I don't know if you remember that, but especially our first speaker, Marie Louisa Garica, was, she looked at all the faces. And, um, and for us, for, for you and me teaching at Cal State Fullerton, it's a normal thing to have Asian students, Latino students, African-American students all together in one room, right? And um, that's just, that's, that's LA, that's Orange County, that's California, that's where we live. If that's not Germany. As, as, as diverse as Germany is, the university system still is not. And they are used to speaking to pretty homogenous groups when they meet with university students. And so they were just in awe of you all. And they always sit, would say, can you please tell us where, you know, tell us a little bit about your family backgrounds and how do you all get in this one room? You know, and I think that that gave, many of you told me that that gave you a new appreciation about a certain aspect of where we live here. That, um, but to highlight your point about you learn you learn something about yourself. Yeah, it's well. perspective. It's perspective, and sometimes uh, leaving leaving home is the best way to get it. Uh, about those voices of these narrators, these oral history um, voices. Natalie Navarre, our archivist here at the center, has compiled a, a rich selection of these voices from the Hitler's Europe to the Golden State project. So let's hear her segment out of the archives. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre, and I'm the archivist for the Center for Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. Every podcast Cough has, Out of the Archives is where I'll be highlighting certain oral histories and other findings from our collections. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips of oral histories that are part of a project created by one of Cough's associate directors, Dr. Cora Ganada. The project named From Hitler's Europe to the Golden State contains oral histories with Europeans who lived through the Third Reich and World War II in Europe. These narrators then migrated later to the U.S. in the post-war period. The individuals that are part of the collection now contribute to the historical record and collective memory of Europe's post-World War II migrants and their impact on California. The first clip you'll listen to comes from an oral history with Walter von de Boot. He was interviewed by Jay Booten on April 21, 2011. Listen as he discusses the explosions he saw while living in the Netherlands while it was occupied during World War II. During the war itself, uh, one bomb fell on November 29, 1944. There was a curfew. You had to, the Germans had a curfew then. They had to be in, inside from, let's say, 8 at night until 6 in the morning. But at 9 o'clock one evening, all of a sudden there was a tremendous explosion. And uh, well, you went to look outside and there were no Germans in town that I that we that were preventing us from going outside and we saw this this, this three houses in ruins in our street. I think a baby was was, was was killed. Yeah so that 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 was the only bomb that fell in town and then on January first of the nineteen forty five uh, the big traffic bridge over our river was uh, bombed by the Allies and fell into the water. 
Bondi Boot's powerful experience provides a glimpse of what it was like to live under occupation in World War II. The next narrator I will highlight is Peter Daniels. He is a Jewish child Holocaust survivor. This interview is conducted by Anna Sinceros on October 20th, 2012. Listen as he remembers his childhood memories of living in Germany. Well, I don't remember the first two or three years of my life, of course, you know, it wasn't that. It was, it was a blur, uh, but I remember from time I had to wear a, a, a star, you know, a yellow cloth star on my clothing. I remember we were not, I was not allowed to go to school. Uh, and as far back as I can remember, we, we, we being, my mother and I, we, we fell under these Jewish, anti-Jewish laws, which meant that I had, we had no privileges whatsoever. Um, there were no playgrounds for me, no zoos, no, no movie, nothing. Any place where the public would generally go, whether it's, you know, wherever it's the beach, the own a pet, or fly a flag, or go to the park, or go to the movies, whatever, we were not allowed to go. Jews were off limits. These were off limits to all Jews. So my childhood was really kind of cloistered. I didn't really get in from the beginning of this, and neither did my mother, although she was older, and so she knew what it was like before the laws were passed. Peter Daniels' words gives us a first-hand account of his and his family's lives during the Holocaust in Germany. The next clip you will listen to comes from an oral history with Rita Bladen. She was born in Manchester, England, and migrated to the United States in 1960s. This interview was conducted by Lindsay Heisentreit on October 1, 2014. Listen as Rita discusses the time an incendiary bomb landed on her house during World War II. So I was once more sleeping in my own bed, and I can't remember how much later, that, well, no, I can't remember the year, but um, I was fast asleep, I just had my own bedroom, and just in the middle of the night, this tremendous crack, I just remember that, just a god-awful crack. And I leapt out, uh, and maybe we'd know, maybe there'd been an, uh, an maybe we're, dis, we're disregarding the, uh, the, uh, the alert. Um, and, but anyway, I just heard this crack, and that's what it was, you know. It, I can't remember the details of it, but what had happened was that um, there was an air raid, an incendiary bomb, probably intended for the aircraft factory, had come through our roof, which was very close to it, just the other side of the the tracks, through the roof, and half of it stayed up there, and half of it fell just at the foot of my parents' bed, the, just by the, the baseboard there, and uh, was smoldering away, and, um, uh, and we all fled. We all fled out of the house and into the air raid shelter, and and through the um, and my mother through the my mother could see the reflection of flames from Vitian Price's where that uh, storage paper storage was ablaze. She could see the reflection in our windows, and she thought our house was going up. Uh-huh. So she kept saying to my father, she said, Jack, go and get the policies, go and get those shoes. Yeah, sending it back into the house before the... No, it wasn't in flames. But my father realized what was happening and he, he you know, he, I guess he was with the home guard and they were all issued with these 
helmets and he, he had sand and uh, he was able to climb up a ladder and put it out in the rafters and of course on the bed. Rita Bladen's memory of surviving an air raid attack provides a personal perspective of those who lived through World War II in Europe. And last, we will leave you with a clip from Marion Rosenblum's oral history. Born in Frankfurt, Germany, she recalls her memories from World War II. Her oral history was conducted by Brian Walsh on October 25th, 2012. Listen as she talks about the amount of work it took to migrate to the United States. We were in France for a year and a half. Now what happened was, which is really quite a story because my parents tried very hard to come to the United States. I mean, that was the ultimate goal. My mother's relatives, uncle and aunt, had left uh, in 1936. So they had only been in the U.S., what, four or five years. And they tried to get other families, and there were like three families trying to sponsor the three of us. But um, it just wasn't, you know, to, to say that they would be... Um, they would make sure that we would not, my parents and I would not become a burden to the government. I mean, they guaranteed that yeah. by their sponsorship. But I don't know just what was necessary. I guess their financial situation wasn't good enough. So that was kind of a no. Yeah. I mean, nothing was happening. Meantime, my, my father's sister had immigrated to Argentina. So that was another possibility of going to Argentina, except that their policies got changed, immigration policies, so that only parents could um, sponsor their children, or children their parents, but not siblings. So that kind of closed the door on that. We listened to some emotionally heavy clips today. These clips illuminate some of the experiences that Europeans lived through during World War II before immigrating to the United States. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough, and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with the From Hitler's Europe to the Golden State Oral History Project, we have around 300 oral history projects that contain almost 6,000 oral histories. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. That was Natalie Navarre's Out of the Archives segment. I'd like to thank our guests today, Cora Granada, Professor of History here at California State University Fullerton and Associate Director of the Center for Oral and Public History, and two of her students who accompanied her in her Los Angeles Langetafel project and then to Germany this summer, Sarah Heim, Sean Hughes. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Outspoken, podcast number four from the Center for Oral and Public History. For our producer, Carrie Rael, this is Benjamin Cothra. Until next time.